This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Silas Marner, The Weaver of Ravelow by George Eliot Chapter 8 When Godfrey Cass returned from Mrs. Osgood's party at midnight, he was not much surprised to learn that Dunsey had not come home. Perhaps he had not sold Wildfire, and was waiting for another chance. Perhaps, on that foggy afternoon, he had preferred housing himself at the Red Lion at Batherley for the night, if the run had kept him in that neighbourhood, for he was not likely to feel much concern about leaving his brother in suspense. Godfrey's mind was too full of Nancy Lammeter's looks and behaviour, too full of the exasperation against himself and his lot which the sight of her always produced in him, for him to give much thought to Wildfire, or to the probabilities of Dunstan's conduct. The next morning the whole village was excited by the story of the robbery, and Godfrey, like every one else, was occupied in gathering and discussing news about it, and in visiting the stone-pits. The rain had washed away all possibility of distinguishing footmarks, but a close investigation of the spot had disclosed, in the direction opposite to the village, a tinder-box, with a flint and steel, half sunk in the mud. It was not Silas's tinder-box, for the only one he had ever had was still standing on his shelf, and the inference generally accepted was, that the tinder-box in the ditch was somehow connected with the robbery. A small minority shook their heads, and intimated their opinion that it was not a robbery to have much light thrown on it by tinder-boxes, that Master Marner's tail had a queer look with it, and that such things had been known as a man's doing himself a mischief, and then setting the justice to look for the doer. But when questioned closely, as to their grounds for this opinion, and what Master Marner had to gain by such false pretenses, they only shook their heads as before, and observed that there was no knowing what some folks counted gain, moreover that everybody had a right to their own opinions, grounds or no grounds, and that the weaver, as everybody knew, was partly crazy. Mr. Macy, though he joined in the defence of Marner against all suspicions of deceit, also pooh-poohed the tinder-box, indeed repudiated it as a rather impious suggestion, tending to imply that everything must be done by human hands, and that there was no power which could make away with the guineas without moving the bricks. Nevertheless, he turned round rather sharply on Mr. Tookey, when the zealous deputy, feeling that this was a view of the case peculiarly suited to a parish clerk, carried it still farther, and doubted whether it was right to inquire into a robbery at all, when the circumstances were so mysterious. As if, concluded Mr. Tookey, as, as if there was nothing but what could be made out by justices and constables. "'Now don't you be overshooting the mark, Tookey,' said Mr. Macy, nodding his head aside admonishingly. "'That's what you're always at. If I throw a stone in it, you think there's summat better than hitting, and you try to throw a stone beyond.' What I said was against the tinder-box. I said nothing against justices and constables, for they're a King George's making, and it'd be ill-becoming a man in a parish office to fly out again King George. While these discussions were going on amongst the group outside the rainbow, a higher consultation was being carried on within, under the presidency of Mr. Crackenthorpe, the rector, 
assisted by Squire Cass and other substantial parishioners. It had just occurred to Mr. Snell, the landlord, he being, as he observed, a man accustomed to put two and two together, to connect with the tinder-box, which, as deputy constable, he himself had had the honourable distinction of finding, certain recollections of a peddler, who had called to drink at the house about a month before, and had actually stated that he carried a tinder-box about with him to light his pipe. Here, surely, was a clue to be followed out, and as memory, when duly impregnated with ascertained facts, is sometimes surprisingly fertile, Mr. Snell gradually recovered a vivid impression of the effect produced on him by the peddler's countenance and conversation. He had a look with his eye, which fell unpleasantly on Mr. Snell's sensitive organism. To be sure, he didn't say anything particular—no, except that about the tinder-box, but it isn't what a man says, it's the way he says it. Moreover, he had a swarthy foreignness of complexion which boded little honesty. "'Did he wear earrings?' Mr. Crackenthorpe wished to know, having some acquaintance with foreign customs. "'Well, stay, let me see,' said Mr. Snell, like a docile clairvoyant, who would not really make a mistake if she could help it. After stretching the corners of his mouth and contracting his eyes, as if he were trying to see the earrings, he appeared to give up the effort, and said, "'Well, he'd got earrings in his box to sell, so it's natural to suppose he might wear em. But he called at every house, almost, in the village. There's somebody else, mayhap, saw em in his ears, though I can't take upon me rightly to say.' Mr. Snell was correct in his surmise that somebody else would remember the peddler's earrings, for on the spread of inquiry among the villagers it was stated with gathering emphasis that the parson had wanted to know whether the peddler wore earrings in his ears, and an impression was created that a great deal depended on the eliciting of this fact. Of course, every one who heard the question, not having any distinct image of the peddler as without earrings, immediately had an image of him with earrings, larger or smaller, as the case might be, and the image was presently taken for a vivid recollection, so that the glazier's wife, a well-intentioned woman, not given to lying, and whose house was among the cleanest in the village, was ready to declare, as sure as ever she meant to take the sacrament the very next Christmas that was ever coming, that she had seen big earrings in the shape of the young moon in the peddler's two ears, while Jinny Oates, the cobbler's daughter, being a more imaginative person, stated not only that she had seen them too, but that they had made her blood creep, as it did that very moment while there she stood. Also, by way of throwing further light on this clue of the tinder-box, a collection was made of all the articles purchased from the peddler at various houses, and carried to the rainbow to be exhibited there. In fact, there was a general feeling in the village that for the clearing up of this robbery there must be a great deal done at the rainbow, so that no man need offer his wife an excuse for going there, while it was the scene of severe public duties. Some disappointment was felt, and perhaps a little indignation also, when it became known that Silas Marner, on being questioned by the squire and the parson, had retained no other recollection of the peddler than that he had called at his door, but had not entered his house, having turned away at once when Silas, holding the door ajar, had said that he wanted nothing. This had been Silas's testimony, though he clutched strongly at the idea of the peddler's being the culprit, if only because it gave him a definite image of a whereabout for his gold, after it had been taken away from its hiding-place, 
he could see it now in the peddler's box. But it was observed with some irritation in the village that anybody but a blind creature like Marner would have seen the man prowling about, for how came he to leave his tinder-box in the ditch close by if he hadn't been lingering there? Doubtless he had made his observations when he saw Marner at the door. Anybody might know, and only look at him, that the weaver was a half-crazy miser. It was a wonder the peddler hadn't murdered him. Men of that sort, with rings in their ears, had been known for murderers often and often. There had been one tried at the sizes, not so long ago, but what there were people living who remembered it. Godfrey Cass, indeed, entering the rainbow during one of Mr. Snell's frequently repeated recitals of his testimony, had treated it lightly, stating that he himself had bought a penknife of the peddler, and thought him a merry, grinning fellow enough, it was all nonsense, he said, about the man's evil looks. But this was spoken of in the village as the random talk of youth, as if it was only Mr. Snell who had seen something odd about the peddler. On the contrary, there were at least half a dozen who were ready to go before Justice Malam, and give in much more striking testimony than any the landlord could furnish. It was to be hoped Mr. Godfrey would not go to Tarley and throw cold water on what Mr. Snell said there, and so prevent the justice from drawing up a warrant. He was suspected of intending this when, after midday, he was seen setting off on horseback, in the direction of Tarley. But by this time Godfrey's interest in the robbery had faded before his growing anxiety about Dunstan and Wildfire, and he was going, not to Tarley, but to Batherley, unable to rest in uncertainty about them any longer. The possibility that Dunstan had played him the ugly trick of riding away with Wildfire, to return at the end of a month, when he had gambled away or otherwise squandered the price of the horse, was a fear that urged itself upon him more, even, than the thought of an accidental injury, and now that the dance at Mrs. Osgood's was past, he was irritated with himself that he had trusted his horse to Dunstan. Instead of trying to steal his fears, he encouraged them with that superstitious impression which clings to us all, that if we expect evil very strongly it is the less likely to come. And when he heard a horse approaching at a trot, and saw a hat rising above a hedge beyond an angle of the lane, he felt as if his conjuration had succeeded. But no sooner did the horse come within sight than his heart sank again. It was not wildfire, and in a few moments more he discerned that the rider was not Dunstan but Bryce, who pulled up to speak, with a face that implied something disagreeable. "'Well, Mr. Godfrey, that's a lucky brother of yours, that Master Dunsey, isn't he?' "'What do you mean?' said Godfrey, hastily. "'Why, hasn't he been home yet?' said Bryce. "'Home? No. What has happened? Be quick. What has he done with my horse?' "'Ah, I thought it was yours, though he pretended you had parted with it to him.' "'Has he thrown him down and broken his knees?' said Godfrey, flushed with exasperation. "'Worse than that,' said Bryce. "'You see, I'd made a bargain with him to buy the horse for a hundred and twenty, a swinging price, but I always liked the horse. And what does he do but go and stake him? Fly at a hedge with stakes in it, atop a bank with a ditch before it. The horse had been dead a pretty good while when he was found. So he hasn't been home since, has he?' "'Home? No,' said Godfrey, "'and he'd better keep away.' "'Confound me for a fool! I might have known this would be the end of it.' "'Well, to tell you the truth,' said Bryce, "'after I'd bargained for the horse, it did come into my head that he might be riding and selling the horse without your knowledge, for I didn't believe it was his own. 
I knew Master Dunsey was up to his tricks sometimes. But where could he be gone? He's never been seen at Batterley. He couldn't have been hurt, for he must have walked off. Hurt? said Godfrey, bitterly. He'll never be hurt. He's made to hurt other people. And so you did give him leave to sell the horse, eh? said Bryce. Yes, I wanted to part with the horse. He was always a little too hard in the mouth for me, said Godfrey, his pride making him wince under the idea that Bryce guessed the sale to be a matter of necessity. I was going to see after him. I thought some mischief had happened. I'll go back now, he added, turning the horse's head and wishing he could get rid of Bryce, for he felt that the long-dreaded crisis in his life was close upon him. You're coming on to Ravelo, aren't you? "'Well, no, not now,' said Bryce. "'I was coming round there, for I had to go to Flitton, and I thought I might as well take you in my way and just let you know all I knew myself about the horse. I suppose Master Dunsey didn't like to show himself till the ill news had blown over a bit. He's perhaps gone to pay a visit at the Three Crowns by Whitbridge. I know he's fond of the house.' "'Perhaps he is,' said Godfrey, rather absently. Then, rousing himself, he said, with an effort at carelessness, "'We shall hear of him soon enough. I'll be bound.' "'Well, here's my turning,' said Bryce, not surprised to perceive that Godfrey was rather down, so I'll bid you good day, and wish I may bring you better news another time.' Godfrey rode along slowly, representing to himself the scene of confession to his father, from which he felt that there was now no longer any escape. The revelation about the money must be made the very next morning, and if he withheld the rest— Dunstan would be sure to come back shortly, and, finding that he must bear the brunt of his father's anger, would tell the whole story out of spite, even though he had nothing to gain by it. There was one step, perhaps, by which he might still win Dunstan's silence, and put off the evil day. He might tell his father that he had himself spent the money paid to him by Fowler, and as he had never been guilty of such an offence before, the affair would blow over after a little storming but Godfrey could not bend himself to this. He felt that in letting Dunstan have the money, he had already been guilty of a breach of trust hardly less culpable than that of spending the money directly for his own behoof, and yet there was a distinction between the two acts that made him feel that the one was so much more blackening than the other as to be intolerable to him. "'I don't pretend to be a good fellow,' he said to himself, "'but I'm not a scoundrel. At least I'll stop short somewhere.' I'll bear the consequences of what I have done sooner than make believe I've done what I never would have done. I'd never have spent the money for my own pleasure. I was tortured into it. Through the remainder of this day Godfrey, with only occasional fluctuations, kept his will bent in the direction of a complete avowal to his father, and he withheld the story of Wildfire's loss till the next morning, that it might serve him as an introduction to heavier matter. The old squire was accustomed to his son's frequent absence from home, and thought neither Dunstan's nor Wildfire's non-appearance a matter calling for remark. Godfrey said to himself again and again that if he let slip this one opportunity of confession, he might never have another. The revelation might be made even in a more odious way than by Dunstan's malignity. She might come, as she had threatened to do. And then he tried to make the scene easier to himself by rehearsal. He made up his mind how he would pass from the admission of his weakness in letting Dunstan have the money to the fact that Dunstan had a hold on him which he had been unable to shake off, and how he would work up his father to expect something very bad before he told him the fact. 
The old squire was an implacable man, he made resolutions in violent anger, and he was not to be moved from them after his anger had subsided, as fiery volcanic matters cool and harden into rock. Like many violent and implacable men, he allowed evils to grow under favour of his own heedlessness, till they pressed upon him with exasperating force, and then he turned round with fierce severity and became unrelentingly hard. This was his system with his tenants. He allowed them to get into arrears, neglect their fences, reduce their stock, sell their straw, and otherwise go the wrong way, and then, when he became short of money in consequence of this indulgence, he took the hardest measures and would listen to no appeal. Godfrey knew all this, and felt it with the greater force because he had constantly suffered annoyance from witnessing his father's sudden fits of unrelentingness, for which his own habitual irresolution deprived him of all sympathy. He was not critical on the faulty indulgence which preceded these fits. That seemed to him natural enough. Still, there was just the chance, Godfrey thought, that his father's pride might see this marriage in a light that would induce him to hush it up, rather than turn his son out and make the family the talk of the country for ten miles round. This was the view of the case that Godfrey managed to keep before him pretty closely till midnight, and he went to sleep thinking that he had done with inward debating. But when he awoke, in the still morning darkness, he found it impossible to reawaken his evening thoughts. It was as if they had been tired out, and were not to be roused to further work. Instead of arguments for confession, he could now feel the presence of nothing but its evil consequences. The old dread of disgrace came back the old shrinking from the thought of raising a hopeless barrier between himself and Nancy, the old disposition to rely on chances which might be favourable to him and save him from betrayal. Why, after all, should he cut off the hope of them by his own act? He had seen the matter in a wrong light yesterday. He had been in a rage with Dunstan, and had thought of nothing but a thorough break-up of their mutual understanding, but what it would be really wisest for him to do was to try and soften his father's anger against Dunsey, and keep things as nearly as possible in their old condition. If Dunsey did not come back for a few days, and Godfrey did not know but that the rascal had enough money in his pocket to enable him to keep away still longer, everything might blow over. End of chapter 8